Well, this morning we're back in our uh, brand new series called I Doubt It as we explore some of the biggest uh, doubts and questions we as human beings uh, wrestle with. Uh, as I mentioned last week, this is a phenomenal series to bring your friends to. So if you know somebody that's just kind of on the fence or maybe they, they just, they're not on the fence, they don't believe at all. Uh, maybe they've been hurt by church or, or whatever the case may be. Would encourage you, bring them to, to one of the services during this series. Um, as I mentioned also last week, the last Sunday in this series will be June 9th. And on June 9th, we're gonna have a discussion panel up here where we're actually going to be answering your questions. And so we just encourage you over the course of the next three or four weeks, if you have a particular doubt or a particular question about God, uh, faith, the world, whatever it is, you can submit those to info at nlcca.org. That's on the screen. Take a snapshot of it, write it down. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna look for themes. We're gonna find the top whatever, four or five kind of questions that emerge from the body here, and we're gonna do our best uh, to take a swing at those uh, on stage June night. And so please just be thinking about, you may already know, like man, I've, I've had this doubt, or I've had this question for a long time, uh, go ahead and drop that to us, or if you think of something today or next week or whatever, uh, you can uh, email us your question or, or your doubt uh, anytime. Well last week, we looked at doubt and whether or not doubt was wrong. Is it wrong to doubt? Is it wrong to have questions? Is it a sin to have doubts? And we looked at uh, if life has a purpose or not. Are we here for any particular reason? Or are we just kind of, a, kind of here and we just enjoy three or four, five, six decades of, of life and then it's kind of, that's the end of it. There's nothing else after. So I would encourage you, if you missed last week, you can grab that on the New Life app or our website, either one. Today we'll be answering one of, I think, the biggest questions that many people grapple with, at least at some level and at some point in their life. And the question is this, does God really exist? Have you ever had that question just kind of pop in your mind? Like maybe when something really bad happened in your life, perhaps when you experienced something really painful, maybe when there was a huge tragedy somewhere in the world and you just think, man, God, if you're really out there, where are you? Do you, do you really exist? And I think most of us have wrestled with that question to one degree or another at different points in our life. I know for me there have been a couple of points in my life where I've asked some version of that question, like, God, where are you? Where are you in this tragedy? Where are you in the middle of this pain or this cir circumstance? Are, are you even out there anywhere? In my experience is, whether you're here as a longtime follower of Jesus, whether you're here as a skeptic, you're just kind of on the fence, or maybe you're here as a proud, card-carrying atheist, we all tend to think about God or the concept of God at times. In fact, I heard a, a story this, this past week. One atheist was talking to one of his friends who happened to be a pastor, and, and he admitted to his pastor friend, you know, I'm kind of ashamed to admit this. I, I don't believe in God, but oftentimes I find myself talking to God. And I'm like, wait, well, stop it. What are you doing? I don't even believe in God, right? I think we all at times think about at least the concept of God from time to time. We all have questions. And if we're honest, many of us also have doubts. I want to read to you a few letters that uh, children have written to God, and maybe you can relate uh, to some of them. So uh, this is Frank. This is what Frank writes to God. He says, God, I bet it's very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world there are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. And so maybe, maybe that's where you're at. Maybe, maybe you can relate to that. 
Lucy, Lucy writes, dear God, are you really invisible or is that just a trick? It's a good question. Right? Darla writes, did you really mean do unto others as they do unto you? Because if you did, then I'm going to fix my brother. Yeah, I can relate to that one. Tim writes, dear God, I wish there was no such thing as sin. I wish there was no such thing as war. I think most of us can relate to Tim. Larry writes, dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works with me and my brother. So a little advice for you parents out there. The good news is God is not intimidated by our questions. Whether they're simple questions like this or whether they're deeper, more complex questions. In fact, as we saw last week with both Thomas, who was a disciple of Jesus, and John the Baptist, I think God welcomes our questions. I think God encourages discovery and science. And I think God desires for you to discover who he is and what his purpose for your life is. God isn't in the shadows of this universe hiding from us. And at New Life, we are convinced that God has given us good answers, compelling answers to many of life's greatest questions. He has given us indications about his presence in our world and about his presence in our lives. And we're going to look at a couple of these uh, indications and evidences together this morning. Now, with, with all of the big questions that we're trying to tackle in this series, uh, there, there's only so deep you can go uh, in 35 or 40 minutes or whatever it is. And I, I know in a lot of ways, all we're doing is we're scratching the surface of answering these big questions. And so just want to let you know also June 9th, the day that we're going to have the discussion panel, we're also going to have some resources available for you in the lobby if you want to go deeper in, into some of these questions. Uh, so just know that's coming in the week, weeks ahead. Uh, just as kind of a to, to fill, fill you in until that time, I want to give you a couple of resources. One is it's called exploregod.com. And so phenomenal resource. I've, I've leaned heavily on that resource as I've been studying, preparing for this series. There's also a phenomenal book called The Problem of God by Mark Clark. Would encourage you to pick up a copy of that. I have leaned heavily on both of those resources. This may surprise you, but I'm not a scientist, okay? So uh, I do have a master's degree, but it's in theology, not in cosmology or, or physics. And so I've leaned heavily on, on these people, uh, these experts, and would encourage you to do the same thing. Richard Dawkins uh, in his book, The God Delusion, writes, the factual premise of religion, the God hypothesis, that's what he calls the idea of God existing, is untenable. That means it's not defensible. God almost certainly does not exist. Now Dawkins is a brilliant man. And so how can we be confident that God does in fact exist? It's a simple, but it's a really challenging question, isn't it? You think about how, how would you answer that question if somebody came up to you and just asked you? You say, you believe in God. What evidence do you stake that belief system on? What evidence do you have for the existence of God? Why do we believe in God? Why should anyone believe in God? Now, this is a critically important question for us to wrestle with, especially in our day and age of growing skepticism. Studies show uh, a rise of a segment in our population called the nuns. Now, we're talking about Catholic nuns, nuns, N-O-N-E-S. 
Now, these are people that are not affiliated with any religion, and so they check none on the surveys. So the stats tell us now 23% of Americans, almost one in four Americans, now classify themselves as nuns. 35% of millennials, which is my age and younger, are nuns. Now, the interesting thing about this is that does not mean that they're all atheists. In fact, the vast majority of the nuns are not atheists. The nuns, by and large, are not done with God. They're just done with traditional religion, in part because they sense that traditional religion is not answering their core questions. So before we dig into the evidence for the existence of God this morning, let me pause for a second and just speak to the Christians in the room this morning. Let me just challenge you that when people in your life have real, authentic, legitimate questions, whether it's your kid, your grandkid, a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, listen, here, here's the type of answer that is not going to be helpful to them. And look, I promise you, this is not a guilt trip, okay? So if you've said something like this, I'm not trying to guilt you. I probably have said something like this before. I'm just telling you, when people have real questions, this stuff is not helpful. Now, maybe you've even said it yourself. You know, the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. Now listen, that may settle it for you because you're already in, you already believe, but listen to me, that is not helpful at all to someone who has deep questions and real doubts. Friends, we have to learn to start where they are, not where we are. The Apostle Paul did this masterfully in Acts chapter 17 with pagan Greeks, right? So he's talking to these pagan Greeks, these thought leaders of the day in the Areopagus, and he starts with their philosophers, their poets, and their worldview as a bridge to God. He doesn't start with the Bible. He starts with all of their stuff and he bridges it to the gospel. We must learn in our day and age to meet people where they are. The gospel of Jesus is too important to dismiss people's questions with worn out Christian platitudes. God has given us far too much compelling evidence to settle for simplistic bumper sticker answers. So as we dive in this morning, let me just encourage you, uh, this morning, put your big boy pants, your big girl pants on, put your thinking caps on. We're gonna go a little bit deeper than we normally do, but I think that this is really important for us all to understand why we believe what we believe, right? You guys ready for this? All right, some of you are. All right, let's do it. First reason to believe that God exists is based on a branch of science that we call cosmology. Now, cosmology is just a fancy word for the study of the origin and development of the universe. So here's how the cosmological argument flows, okay? The cosmological argument says whatever begins to exist has a cause. So if something begins to exist, it has a cause, right? Therefore, the universe begins to exist, so the universe must have a cause outside of itself. Now, I'll illustrate this with a story for my kids. My kids are a little bit older now, but they were, when they were super little, two, three years old, I used to do this little trick with a quarter. You guys probably have done it as well, right? You take a little quarter and you hide it somewhere in your hand or your fingers or your sleeve or wherever you've got it, and you kind of reach behind their ear and you pull out a quarter. You're like, look, I found a quarter behind your ear. But listen, even at age two or three, my kids were trying to figure out how I did it. 
It's like, did you have it hiding in this hand? Did you have it hiding in that hand? Was it in here? Did you tape it into my hair when I was asleep? And it slides down. But even they, at age two or three, understood that something that intricate and that detailed doesn't just happen on its own. They understood somebody or something created it and put it there behind their ear, right? And by the way, everybody agrees on this scientific principle. From atheistic scientists to Christian scholars. Now that, always, that hasn't always been the case. For a long time, atheists argued that the universe always existed. So there was no need for God. The argument went, listen, the, the universe has always existed, so there's no need for a God because there was no beginning. The universe has just always existed. It's eternal. In fact, a very famous atheist, Bertrand Russell, um, wrote this. The universe is just there, and that's all. Now, that was a very common view for a long time in the scientific community, but that all began to change as technology advanced and we discovered more and more about our universe. Now, I don't wanna get overly technical this morning, but I do wanna give you a rundown of how we arrived at what I think is a very persuasive argument, the cosmological evidence that God exists. So we'll start with, go back to middle school science days, the second law of thermodynamics. You guys remember that? Essentially, what the second law of thermodynamics says is that the universe is slowly running out of energy, which means if the universe had always existed, we would have run out of energy a long, long time ago, which means we would all be dead and we would not be sitting here talking right now. In other words, this scientific law proves definitively that our physical universe had a specific starting point at a specific point in time. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. So you go back to your middle school, high school science class. The short of that theory is that it proved that the universe had a beginning, which implies that if the universe had a beginning, there had to be a beginner who was responsible for the bringing the universe into existence. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red light shift from distant galaxies. You say, well, what in the world is that about? Well, that told us that the universe is not only expanding, but it sprang from a very specific point in time. Now, th listen, this discovery shocked the scientific community. It was a monumental discovery that changed everything in the scientific community. In fact, all of these discoveries that we've just talked about led to a very famous theory that you've all heard of. It's called the Big, the Big Bang, the Big Bang Theory. Now, almost all cosmological scientists agree now that the universe had a specific beginning. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must exist beyond the space-time universe. So the cause must be timeless, the cause must be spaceless, it must be immaterial, and it must be unimaginably powerful. That sounds a lot to me like God. <laughs> the Big Bang Theory sounds an awful lot like the biblical doctrine we get in the book of Genesis, which was written thousands of years ago, and we call this doctrine that we get in Genesis creation ex nihilo. Now this literally means God created everything in our physical universe out of nothing, out of nothing, ex nihilo, right? The very first words in Genesis are these. This is Genesis 1. You may be familiar with it. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. This sounds a lot like the creation of matter to me. And the darkness was over the face of the deep. Sounds an awful lot like space. And the Spirit of God was hovering, hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, what if science was simply pointing to the very same event described in the beginning of the book of Genesis? It is amazing to me that the more scientists discover about our universe, the more logical sense the Bible makes. It's incredible to me. And by the way, many atheistic scientists like Einstein initially refuted and resisted these theories like the Big Bang Theory because they realized what the implications of these scientific discoveries were. But listen, wouldn't you agree that we all should follow wherever the facts lead us? Shouldn't we follow wherever the facts lead us? I'm, listen, I'm just here this morning to tell you the facts lead us to God. And despite what you may have heard, science is not at all at odds with God. I would say with the great philosopher uh, Francis Bacon, and by the way, anybody who has the last name Bacon, you know that whatever they're about to say is legit, it's, re it's, it's really good. And so I stand with the great philosopher Francis Bacon when he said, God has given us two books. He has given us the book of nature and he has given us the book of the scriptures and they are not opposed, they complement one another beautifully. The cosmological argument proves that it is very reasonable to believe that God exists by looking at our universe using scientific theory and law. Now listen, if you wanna go deeper on that, because again, our time is limited this morning, I would point you to www.reasonablefaith.org. This will be on the screens for you. Take a snapshot of it, write it down, reasonablefaith.org. Now I'm indebted to Dr. William Lane Craig uh, in my understanding of this evidence. That is his website. It is phenomenal, so I would encourage you to tap into uh, that resource uh, on your own time. So truth number one is this. Number one, the universe points us to God. The universe, everything around us, points us to an intelligent designer, the intelligent designer of an intricate, detailed design. Now, I gotta tell you, I, I was super excited this last week. I spent uh, some time on the Hubble website, just kind of going through all of their pictures that uh, they've taken from all these different faraway galaxies, stuff that's millions and millions of light years away, things that we would never, ever, ever be able to discover without science and um, all the technology that's advanced over the last few years. But I just wanna show you a few of these. The first picture is a star cluster that is many, many light years away, just millions of stars cluster. This is in our universe. It's incredible. Now, here, here's the second, the second picture is the Whirlpool Galaxy that was discovered all, not all that long ago. Now get this, the Whirlpool Galaxy is 31 million light years away. Scientists tell us that in that galaxy, there are hundreds of billions of stars. In fact, in the arms of that galaxy, because you can kind of see the arms that kind of twist around, scientists tell us that new stars are being born in that galaxy as we speak. In our own galaxy, the, the Milky Way, that's like our little cul-de-sac of the universe. If you think our world, the Earth, is in the middle, it's not. We're not even the center of our own little cul-de-sac. 
we're like down to the, to the bottom right. So right in the middle is the Milky Way star cluster. Scientists say over half a million stars. That's the center of our galaxy. The Lagoon Nebula, get this, 4,000 light years away. Scientists tell us at the center of that nebula is a young star that is 200,000 times brighter than our sun. Incredible. We don't have time for me to like describe all these, and so Mike's just going to roll through them. You can kind of look at everything that's out there in the universe. would encourage you, go to the Hubble website. I was, I was just going through this website this week, and my heart was worshiping. It's like, God, you, you are amazing. You are so big, and you are so amazing. You are so powerful, and I am so small. It's so small in comparison to you. And my heart was just singing out as I was looking at his creation, and all of this is out there. And the bigger telescopes we get, the more of this crazy stuff we find out there. It, it's incredible. Listen. The world around us is screaming that there is a God. Dr. Robin Collins, an expert in this field, says this about the overwhelming evidence of God from uh, our universe. He says, let's say you were way out in space. You're going to throw a dart at random toward the earth. It would be like successfully hitting a bullseye that is one trillionth of a trillionth of an inch in diameter. That's less than the size of one solitary atom. Robin Collins basically is saying the odds that the complexity of our universe could come into existence without an intelligent design and an incredibly powerful designer, that the chances of that are so astronomically small that it is virtually impossible, scientifically speaking. This evidence is so strong that many leading atheists have had to change their view on the origin of the universe. I want you to listen to some of these guys. This is Fred, you can look them up. This is Fred Hoyle, atheist, cosmologist, scientist. Now, now remember, this guy doesn't believe, but when he looks at the evidence, this is what he writes. He says, it looks like a super intellect has monkeyed with physics. You wouldn't say, Fred, you wouldn't say. Dr. Paul Davis says this, I cannot believe that our existence in this universe is a mere quirk of fate. We are truly meant to be here. Anthony Flew, known as the modern uh, father of atheism, uh, he really generated a, a huge movement of atheism back in the 20th century. He actually rejected atheism based on this science. Based on the cosmological evidence, Anthony Flew spent his life promoting atheism, stepped away from it before he died because of this evidence, and this is what he writes before his death. Flew says, I now believe that the universe was brought into existence by an infinite intelligence. In other words, God. The prophet Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah chapter 40. Listen to what he says. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul as he writes in the book of Romans. 
Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now what truth is Paul talking about here? Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since what? The creation of the world. In other words, Paul is saying, look at our universe. It's proof that God exists and the things that have been made, so they, we, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature or creation rather than the creator. That was 2,000 years ago. That sounds a lot like our culture today, doesn't it? Listen to King David, Psalm 19. He's pushing forth the same, same idea, the same evidence. Verse one, Psalm 19, David says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Friend, the evidence is compelling. The cosmological argument is persuasive. Our universe points us to an intelligent design. Believing in God is not foolish. It is the most logical explanation for what we see in the universe around us. The universe points us undoubtedly, unquestionably to God. That's evidence number one, cosmological argument, scientific. Number two, second reason to believe in God is from what we call the evidence of morality. So we had the evidence from cosmology, now we have the evidence from morality, and basically all this is saying is that each one of us has an internal standard of morality. The Bible calls this the conscience. C.S. Lewis, the famous atheistic Oxford professor, became a Christian. He first believed in God from this argument, from the evidence of morality. He said, and this is, this is uh, Lewis writing, he said, look around. Everybody says things like, well, how'd you like it if somebody did the same to you? Hey, that's my seat, I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in line first? Hey, give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. Lewis says people say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated people. Children as well as grown-ups. Now what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of higher standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior or morality or whatever you want to call it about which they really agreed. Now, if you have kids or grandkids, you know exactly what Lewis is talking about here, don't you? We have three kids. If I give one of my kids a cookie, the other two are going to show up in three nanoseconds as professional lawyers to argue why it is unfair that their brother or sister got a cookie and they did not. They are constantly appealing to this invisible, unspoken moral code. 
that, listen to me, we were all born with. Who told them about all these rules? I didn't. They came out of the womb with this moral standard and understanding of what is right and wrong and what is fair and what is unfair. Now, why, why do we all instinctively know that it's wrong to murder someone? Why do we all agree that physical or sexual abuse of a small child is a heinous evil? Who told us that? Society? Wrong. You can go to societies and cultures all over the world, and we all know and agree that certain things are right and wrong. This moral code is not conditioned into us by society as some atheist thinkers would have you believe. Why do we all intrinsically know that racism is wrong? Why do we all agree that what Hitler did was evil? Listen, if there is no objective moral standard by which we all live, who are we to tell Hitler what he did was wrong? Who are we to tell the racist that their belief system is wrong? Who are we to tell the pedophile that their actions are wicked? If right and wrong is just determined by each person, then none of us can say that anything is right and wrong for anybody else. None of us can appeal to any standard of what is good or what is evil. It's all just subjective opinion. That's why many people start down the pathway of atheism, but eventually abandon that worldview because it's unsustainable for most people. It has massive gaps and inconsistencies and it is very hard to live out that worldview in any kind of consistent way because the logical conclusions of that worldview are deeply disturbing. Richard Dawkins himself, famous atheist, admitted as much. He wrote this based on the moral argument or the moral dilemma. He said, there is no evil, there is no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Now, does that sound like an appealing way for you to live your life? Does that sound like an appealing worldview to you? Because none of us naturally live our lives that way. We are all born with a moral code, a standard, a conscience that science alone cannot explain. We all believe in a right and a wrong. It is not socially conditioned. Listen to me, it was, it was stitched into our hearts by a good God as a beautiful reminder of his existence and his love for us. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul again in the book of Romans. Paul writes this, for when Gentiles, these were the Greek sort of pagans that didn't believe in God, didn't have access to the Bible. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, the Old Testament, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. Listen, we all believe that hurting a child is wrong. We all believe that hating someone because of their ethnicity is evil. We all believe that mercy is better than hatred. But why? Because God has written it on our hearts. Not only does the universe point us clearly to God, but also, and this is number two, write this down, number two, our conscience points us to the existence of God. 
The universe points us to God, and our conscience points us to God. Now, here's the last evidence of God that we have time. There are many more, many more. would encourage you, check out the book, check out the resources I've given you. We'll give you more in a few weeks. But the last evidence that we're going to look at this morning is the evidence of personal experience. Now, admittedly, this one is more subjective, but I would argue it's equally as powerful. I've heard it said, you've probably heard it said as well, a man with an experience will never be at the mercy of a man with an opinion. An authentic personal experience is difficult to dismiss. I think about the story in the Gospel of John. You guys may remember the story. Uh, there's this guy who was born blind, and he was a beggar. And so he had never seen anything in his life, and the Gospel tells us that Jesus heals the guy. He gives him sight for the first time. And the guy's walking around. He's, he's talking to people. He's seeing things, and people start to gather like, hey, wait a minute. Isn't that the guy who was born blind? Hasn't he been sitting there for like 30 or 40 years by that gate begging? Isn't that him? And some were like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's him. And other people over here were like, no, no, that can't be him. That probably just looks like him. It's like his twin brother or something. That's not him. And the whole time, the guy's standing there going, hey, guys, it's me. It's me, it's me. The Bible says, he actually says, I am that man. And so they grab him and they just start hammering him with all these questions like, how are you healed? Who healed you? Where is this Jesus guy? And the Pharisees grab him and the Pharisees start to interrogate him. They're asking him all these questions and finally the, the guy who was blind but could now see, he just stops everyone. It's like, whoa, 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 stop all the questions. Listen, I don't know all of the answers to all of your silly questions. All I know is that I was once blind and now I see. And that leads us to our third and final truth this morning. Our personal experience points us to God. So the universe points us to God, our conscience, or a moral standard that we all live by, whether we like it or not, points us to God, and our personal experience points us to God. Listen, nobody can take your story from you. We had dinner with some friends from, from New Life this past week, and they were just recounting the many ways God has been faithful to them in the most amazing details of their lives. I mean, I'm talking intricate, precise answers to their prayers that were way too specific to be coincidence. And many of you similarly can look back in your life and say with the blind man, look, I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. All I know is that Jesus changed my life. I was blind, but now I see. I was enslaved to sin or depression or addiction, and we heard some of those stories this morning, but now I'm free. I'm not perfect, but I'm free. That stuff doesn't own me anymore. That's so many of our stories, man. You cannot tell us that God does not exist because we have experienced him in such a powerful way that the only conclusion that we can draw is that he exists, he is near to us, and he is good. Now listen, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, that's never happened to me, man. It's good for you, but I, God's never revealed himself to me. I don't feel like he's ever spoken to me. I don't feel like he's ever done anything for me. In fact, I feel like he's abandoned me. If that's you, listen, I want you to know that God's desire for you is for you to encounter him, to experience him in a life-transforming way, in a life-changing way. So as we close this morning, let me just encourage you, bow your heads, close your eyes with me for just a minute as the band comes. I just wanna close by saying this. Listen, the, the, the evidence is convincing. The evidence is there. It's not a lack of evidence. 
In fact, 80 to 85% of the world's population believes in God, even among those who are not religious. And so my question for you this morning is, is a simple one. Do, do you believe? Will you believe? A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The evidence from creation, the evidence from morality, our own personal experience is strong. Do you believe? Will you believe? If you're here this morning, you're already a Christian, you're already a follower of Jesus, listen, I want you to understand, you can be supremely confident in these truths. Our faith is not built on myths, it's not built on a fairy tale, our faith is built on sound logic. You can be confident in what we believe. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, listen, I want you to know God wants to reveal himself to you. And some of you have been searching for God for weeks, for months, some of you maybe even years. Some of you may not even know that what you're searching for is God. But I'm here to tell you, he's searching for you. He's the good shepherd who leaves the 99 in search for the one. He loves you. You have doubts, that's fine. I'm telling you to doubt your doubts. Will you believe? And what I'm telling you is the more you look into scripture, the more you look into the universe, the more you will see God looking back at you. The evidence is there. Will you embrace the one who created you and the one who loves you? Let's pray and then we'll sing. God in heaven, thank you for not hiding in the shadows. Thank you that everything around us, God, in this universe displays your glory, the stars, the heavens, the expanse of creation. They all scream of your existence and your goodness and your glory, God. Thanks that we can be confident that, that the evidence points us to you, points us to a personal God who desires to know and be known, God. My prayer is for the person who may be here who has never experienced you, Father. And maybe that's because they've never believed, Father, or maybe they believe in some sort of intellectual way. Maybe they're really churchy, maybe they're really religious, but they've never actually had their lives, their hearts transformed by a good and living God, Father. So for the, that person that I'm talking to right now, God, would you just give them the courage, even right now in this moment, to cry out to you and just say, God, God, I'm a sinner. Sinner, I need you, God. I need you. I have questions, but more than I need answers to all of my questions, I know I need you. God, I need a home, and I need hope, and I need freedom, God. So I turn away from living life my way. I turn away from my sin, and I turn to Jesus. I turn to you, God. Friend, if you just prayed a prayer similar to that, I want to just encourage you before you leave, we're going to have some people up here. We'd love to pray for you. You don't have time you can just pull out your connection card and check i want to know more about following jesus you can drop those connection cards in the wooden boxes on your way out this morning father help us help us not just to believe help us not just to believe in you god but help us to live fully help us to live abundantly in your kingdom we pray it all in the name that we cling to the most in the name of jesus
Amen.